0: For me it took a long time to get to the place where you have to value your time you
1: have to account for
0: that and then you have to account for a little bit more for all the unexpected
1: that's the voice of joe teal owner of boundary fog furniture and i'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor this episode is brought to you by jobber jobber is software to organize and manage your business Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Joe Thiel, owner of the Portland, Oregon-based furniture company Boundary Fog Furniture. Some people plan on starting a furniture company. They dot all the I's and cross all the T's and open their doors on the first day ready to go. And some people, like Joe, build their company organically. They develop their design voice and their business playbook as their company grows and evolves. Through his evolution, Joe has certainly found his style. And through ups and downs, he's also come to a greater understanding of how he wants to run his business in a way that works best for him. Follow along as we talk about educating customers, balancing social media to help your bottom line, growing a business your own way, and much more. We have so much to get into in this episode, so let's jump right in and hear about Joe's journey in his own words.
0: I never really, I didn't do shop class growing up. I wasn't a handy kid. I didn't really think of myself as like a maker or anything. Um, I did pretty well in school, and so like when I got out of college, I thought that I was going to be a writer or do something like very creative and didn't really have any inkling towards furniture, but I got a job at a furniture company, like a, a big box store, it was called Sofa Mart. So like furniture row, it's like stuff made overseas. Um, and I was like a salesperson and that moved me to Montana. I'm originally from the Midwest. So I kind of got into that world of like, just thinking about like home goods and that stuff isn't made that well. Like it's not made well at all. It's like a lot of chipboard and all that stuff. Like So, but it got me like thinking about furniture design and like, that's a very rudimentary like way to get into it. It's not high design or anything like that, but it started me down that path. And so I would got to a point where I kind of was like really fed up with that career. It was during the great recession, 10 plus years ago. And so like, it was, it was a slog to be in retail at that time. and. In that time I got married and we ha- were having our first baby, my son, who's now 11. She, my wife was um, getting her PhD at the time. We decided that I would quit my job so that she could do that full time and I would stay home with Gus, our son. And over that couple of years that I was at home with him, I kind of picked up woodworking as a hobby and was you know, consuming any books that I could, doing lots of like small projects, starting out really basically, building like a workbench and stuff like that. Um, And we found our way to Oregon, and then I took a few classes, like a very, very introductory classes from the Northwest Woodworking Studio here in Portland. And that kind of sent me down like a hand tool path where I really loved the romanticism of hand planes and chisels and hand cut joinery. And I started making like some basic pieces for our house, like a stool, a desk. Looking back, they're not very good, but they were fun. And it started me started me down the path. So moving forward, like I started to do a little bit more advanced pieces, still was doing pretty much everything by hand. So it was slow, but as my son kind of got into the age where he was doing some like part-time preschool care, I was having, you know, a few hours a day where I could just do that. So I took on a a couple, I think the first like really piece that I was proud of was a a small desk that I donated to his school for a, a school auction. And from that auction i got my first like client and i way undercharged. like did i paid for materials luckily but like i made zero dollars basically on it most people are very afraid to charge what something's actually worth um but from that like word of mouth maybe i got a few other um commissions from that or just like requests. And then I started making more things for our house. And I guess I was maybe posting it on like Facebook at the time. And lots of my friends were saying, oh, you should sell these like, oh, someday I'll have you make something for me. And I wasn't ever thinking of it as like a career, but like not having a clear career path as my son was getting closer to like being full-time into school. I thought, well, it's better than, you know, going and working retail again, so. Um, I think that was like 2014, like December of 2014. And that fall, I had kind of make, made a couple like more advanced projects or just like nicer wood projects. I went to Gobi Walnut here in Portland and got some nice walnut, uh, made some lamps. And so I like put together like five or six pieces and I started an Etsy storefront from that. And through that time, I, like, I didn't really sell anything at first. Like I was dreaming that I'd be selling these lamps and like it'd be a product and that would be my business that something shippable easy to 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 ship across the country but in that time I my son was also needing like a his first bed out of a crib and so there was the idea that we could buy one or then the basic idea that I could make one and thinking at first like okay something utilitarian just to get it done uh but then I as a woodworker you want to like make everything really nice and i thought well hey i have this new etsy storefront so maybe i'll make him a bed and then i'll put the i'll take photos of it and put the photos up online and i did like a live edge headboard and then like kind of made some stuff up as i went like details to the bed and i really liked mid-century lines so some of the the carving the like sculpted posts like i did a little flare and like the tapered rounded legs and all that so I, i I made this bed, moved all the furniture out of our living room, staged the bed and took photos of it and then put them up on on Etsy with like a price of I think it was like $2,000, something that I thought was like nobody ever pays $2,000 for a bed. That's crazy Um, because we put our own like budgets or whatever onto things and project that onto other people. Anyway, like three days later, I sold a bed (laughs) out of nowhere. And then like four days after that, I sold a second one. And so not really intending to start a big time furniture company at this point, because I was in a one car garage and didn't have like a table saw or anything. I had can tools and then a local shop that was like a community shop I could do milling at. I, I got these two orders and like you know a pretty good amount of money from them no idea how to ship them or anything but i kind of knew how to make them from making it the first time you know over like 3 or 4 weeks i made those two beds kind of together like there was my first batch of furniture and like a few weeks later i sold another one and then that first year i i think i sold 18 or 20 of this type of bed frame and would get requests for like different types of pieces or like i think i sold some lamps in that time too but i was pretty overwhelmed because i went from not having you know a a job or like a command i was like a stay-at-home dad um to like every uh, weekend every evening basically was like i was doing commissions and then like thinking about how to make it more sustainable and over the next couple years we moved to a new house uh, had a slightly larger garage and that became more of like a this is what i do thing uh, but i was still working all the time that's kind of like running theme is (laughs) working all the time every spare minute has been filled Uh, but getting to the point you know like two or three years into it where some of the pieces that i did evolved into nightstands and some dining tables but still came back to the beds from that like that takes me into like cabinetry i don't do like kitchens or anything but like for the last i think it's been four years Like most of my pieces have some sort of veneer work in them. And then I also, I guess, do have this whole other side of like, I still do beds. That first bed that I did for my son, I have two of them in progress right now. So it's been refined a bit more from that, but the original photos of that bed, somehow they still work, they're still up. And yeah, so through that time, I've learned how to do all these different things Pretty much the entire time, it's been just me as photographer, as customer service, as logistics, all that stuff. And I eventually moved out of my garage, I guess, to into a shared shop at first for a couple of years. And then last year, kind of not really my choice, but I ended up needing to find a, a shop of my own, which led to a pretty large shop. I'm in 2,100 square feet now. Took on a full-time employee, had a part-time employee, too trying to figure out how to really turn it into a business. So the last three years have really been more trying to be like legitimate presenting. Like it's not just a guy in his garage. That's a really quick way of saying over eight years going through a lot of what's going to work now. What's, you know, but yeah, that's where I'm at right now, I guess.
1: It's hard to fit an eight-year journey into a concise and and quick quick elevator pitch of who you are, because there's so much that sticks out as major tentpoles in your journey. But there's also all the little things that happen that make your company what it is today. And that's what we're here to talk about, how you got from that beginning to now and how you made a successful business out of something that you didn't even know was going to be a business when you started. Right. I really want to get into a lot of the different things that you brought up. But one thing that really jumped out at me that I wanted to hit on right from the beginning is you said you project your idea of a budget onto other people. And and those words are so true and something that I see all the time. And I think that we should start there because I know that not only pricing, but the idea of your own worth as a business owner, as a furniture maker, as somebody who builds stuff and puts it out there is a really hard concept, something that people really struggle with. So let's start there. And what's your thoughts on how you started in the beginning of your company to now?
0: yeah, so with my retail experience, I did that for almost five years, and that's that was one of the lessons that we'd be taught in sales training or whatever. Uh, and that a lot of the experience with that was kind of valuable for you know the customer service side of this because that doesn't always come naturally to me um, or didn't like comparing myself now to them. When you have a customer or a client now, you don't want to like, assume things about them. I guess there's like a, a sense of feeling people out because as furniture makers, I think we all believe every piece should be a million dollars. That'd be great. And I'd have a perfect furniture company if that were the case. But since that's not realistic, the idea is like, hopefully like you can find like that fair price where you're happy to make it and they're happy to pay it. And for a long time was too worried about them being happy to, to pay it before I even like considered what my feeling about making it for that price would be because a lot of it's inexperience until you make a piece a couple times, you don't really know what it's going to be. Even if it's similar to a piece you've made before, because like custom versus product, if you're doing a custom piece that I think of it as like inventing a piece, like if it's not a piece that I've ever done before, there's all the different things, all the different decisions that clients won't see most they don't care about but they still have to be decided and done and once you've done enough a lot of that stuff kind of comes automatic like if somebody wants a custom bed that's a little bit easier for me to do having done 60 beds in the past because i know like the the basic tenets of it and like with the vanities that i'm doing like those are pretty similar piece to piece structure and everything but if somebody's asking for a dresser or a hutch or credenza that had you know like has a different arrangement there's commonalities between pieces but there's a lot that goes into those pieces that we just don't know until we're doing it so for a long time like i would price things on feeling i kind of have a, have a sense of material cost. like that you can kind of that's math and then you can think optimistically or even conservatively estimate how long it's going to take but at least for me, there's sometimes a struggle with new pieces of getting stuck and then going on to something else and then coming back to it and still being stuck, like trying to break the design or break the join rate, like figuring out that, that problem that you're, you're facing. And none of that stuff really is easy to account for when you're estimating. So back then it was just like, what's a number that I know is more than the cost of materials? that will maybe pay me some and at the time that two thousand dollars was for the bed seemed like it might as well have been a million dollars because i knew that the the walnut would be a couple hundred dollars it was probably like at the time seven or eight hundred dollars um and then i just the rest i'd figure out it's like i'm in my garage doing this anyway so if i get paid anything that's great what i learned though was that there's other things that come up that if you're charging a flat rate for something like that and not really like figuring out ahead of time. I remember one of those first orders, these were beds that were being shipped across the country and I didn't really know how to do that. So the first one that I had to ship, I decided to crate it up because blanket wrap shipping, as we all know, is nice when it happens and you can afford it, but it's also super slow. So on that one, I decided to build a crate and eventually had to rebuild it because I made it four inches too tall, but that cost me like $900 to ship that bed. And i didn't account for that and i didn't charge that client because i was afraid to go back to them so that was the hiccup that i had to kind of get past or the holdup in my mind of i'm not going to decide the client's budget they they're coming to me and especially at this point i have somewhat of a reputation or i have my prices out there people can see where i'm at before they are even approaching me so that's helpful but yeah for me it took a long time to kind of get to the place where you have to value your time you have to account for that And then you have to account for a little bit more for all the unexpected. And at a certain point, you get to a place like that. We all kind of hope to get to where there's this amalgus chunk of overhead or whatever, like markup that goes towards the intellectual property of it or the uniqueness of it or just the rareness of it. So some of the material I use is super rare. Some of the techniques I use are not rare, but maybe like just people don't bother to do them. So when you're doing something unique, you're finding your niche, hopefully you get to a place where you can find those clients that will pay you to sustain your business. Because a friend told me once that there's always somebody willing to go out of business faster than you. (laughs) And um, that really sticks with me because a long time ago, I kind of decided that I, I can't compete on price. So I need to figure out the pricing that works for me. And that's still not perfected, but I'm much closer to it now than I was a few years ago.
1: You mentioned the distinction between custom and product, custom furniture and a collection, a product of furniture. But I see your business model as a mix of both. And it it goes back to that, I guess, first bed. And that idea continues throughout that you made a custom piece. And when you put it out there, you said, This is a custom piece, but it represents something that I can make. You can have something that's like that. So you don't necessarily have a product line. You have custom pieces that once you put up there can then be customized. And that way you have a mix of both worlds. You don't have to commit to this is my idea. Because when you have a collection of furniture, that's your idea. You're putting that out into the world and saying, this is my furniture, buy it as is. And then when you're a custom furniture company, you say, I can build anything that you want. I can build anything that's in your mind. How does that work for you when you're dealing with clients? Do you find people lean more towards your ideas or lean more towards their ideas and when you're dealing with clients how does that process go when they say i saw this on your website and you say okay let's pick it up from there
0: yeah that's that's a pretty good summation of what what my business is i think part of it comes down to like when you're early on you want to take everything that comes in Because it's money or you just like, I felt for a long time, especially when I moved into the first shop out of my garage and had overhead, I felt like there always has to be money coming in. And so I always have to have a client and I always have to have a few months work booked. And that's always nice. And so I do have products in the sense that the beds that I make are very much customizable for sure. I asked like a few questions for every bed to get dimensions or sitting height right and all that. And especially for the live edge beds, those are gonna look very different because I use a local wood like Oregon Black Walnut, like it, it varies a lot in character. And so for those, the live edge is gonna kinda vary from piece to piece and that that's customizable by the client. So a lot of times they're coming, looking at the example pieces and knowing that it's made to order and knowing that they have some control over it. I've found that in the past, like if I have something in stock, it just won't sell. Like I'll, I'll advertise it as in stock ready to sell. Like if it's a full size piece, like I had a bed for a long time that I just had an extra of, cause I decided to be proactive and have one in stock. And it took four years to sell because it just, people want, they want the experience of customizing things a lot of times. And so that's expected. I think that the problem or the thing that I'm still figuring out and trying to address is not being that cheesecake factory and having this like menu of things that I do, all these different things. And that I still kind of feel like that because, you know, doing beds and vanities, there's not a lot of commonalities between those. If I'm doing two different types of bed, there's a lot of commonality between those, making rails or making posts. Like those are kind of similar processes, but like making drawers versus making rails or slats or whatever, those are very different. So that's one part of it. The other part um, that I think you kind of mentioned or touched on was early on, I I guess when I was saying early on, I was taking a lot of things just to take them on and custom work especially. Uh, I've realized in the last few years now that I'm not as challenged to find the customers as I was in the very early days. I don't want to take the jobs that are like, somebody's looking for a woodworker to do this custom piece for them. I, I've taken on those, you know, at certain times, and I almost always regret it. If somebody's looking for a piece based on a piece that I've done before, or seen my work and are compelled to work with me on a custom piece, that's my ideal situation. And that's what I'm aiming myself more towards with the custom pieces. If somebody says, hey, I'm looking for this piece, and it's very different from the pieces that I'm doing, I'm probably not the best person for that so there's been times that I've said yes to custom pieces that, of stuff that I don't do because I do want to do that type of thing but that's more like me deciding that it's good for like the future of my company to like be doing vanities for instance if I would have said no to that throughout the last couple of years throughout the pandemic my sales would have been somewhat limited to people looking for furniture which it still might have gone well and i might have been into a whole different range of things other than vanities but with the housing boom and all that like vanities specifically have just been a very big thing and so that's something i think especially with clients coming to me they're looking to customize based on the pieces that i've done in the past they just like i qualify myself by putting these pieces out there that i've done in the past and then it's like, okay, we want something that feels like this in the dimensions that we need or slightly tweak that fit their needs better.
1: You are steering your own ship. And a lot of company owners forget that you can direct your company where you want it to go. And, and a lot of times furniture company owners think they need to take everything that comes in. And maybe at some points in your career, you do. Sometimes you need to take things on just to stay afloat. And I'm aware of that. But at the same time, if you have an idea of what you want to do, then you should be taking the jobs that get you on that path, that head you in the direction of doing more of the things that you either like to do or you're good at. It doesn't make sense if you are great at doing live edge work, but you only take four mica kitchen cabinets, that is a disconnect. And yes, in the short run, that might get you some money, but that's not going to be a sustainable business. If that's not what you want to do, or if that's not what you're good at. So I hear what you're saying about taking the work that makes sense to you. And I agree that if you're in the position to do that, then that's how you should be operating your business. Talking about how you want to operate your business and dealing with clients and how you deal with clients, you mentioned this a little bit, but I want to get more into it. I know that you have a very strong opinion on veneer and the idea of wood veneer versus solid wood. And that's a debate that I'm sure every single wood furniture maker out there who's listening has had with their clients where they say, your budget calls for veneer, or I think that this project would be better in veneer because solid wood wouldn't be a good option. And that is always a hard conversation to have with a client because you need to educate them about what veneer really is, what quality, high quality furniture grade veneer is Versus what they think of from a major big box store. So, can you talk a little bit about veneer and maybe share some of your insights into it for people who are out there having this exact same conversation with clients daily?
0: Yeah. Like, so when I worked for the furniture store, this is kind of perfect. Like, all of that furniture is, you know, MDF core with veneer over top. And it's terrible. Like, we had pieces in the in the showroom like they look great when they when they're new and then like anybody who's had one of those quality of pieces or something from ikea like if something gets chipped or knocked into you see the core you see like maybe the the glue releases if you've left a coaster on the wrong part of it or something and then also usually it goes with like a really plasticky finish too all of it is tied with low quality furniture and so then veneer gets kind of mentally tied I think in a lot of us to low quality furniture and so that was my thought you know when I was starting out in furniture making like I had no intention of going into veneer work the kind of inspiration for it though was seeing a lot of really high-end makers use veneer proper veneer like where it's very thin knowing how to do that I don't use that very thin veneer I use some commercial veneer but usually it's like a specialty thickness but most of the veneer that I use is resawn like here in my shop. And the kind of motivating factor behind that was with Oregon black walnut, like Western walnut, it's very unique. And it's like pretty limited. If you find a really nice piece uh, of Western walnut, like it's not a guarantee that you'll find two or three other pieces from that same tree, because from tree to tree, it's just, it, it depends on the soil that it was growing in. Like the color varies so much. And there's, there's some value in like matching slightly miscolored pieces together. I think that's a really cool look with other makers that I've seen. But for what I wanted to do, I was, I was looking for kind of consistency throughout a piece. And so to find the quantity to do like an entire, like one of the, my favorite pieces ever was a bookcase that I did that had elements of solid wood, live edge and veneer work. And it came out of like three or four boards. Like I was lucky enough to find a batch of wood and i maybe bought like eight or ten slabs of this wood but i wanted to like stretch it as far as possible because i was going to make a couple different pieces out of it and just like being able to take this like pretty valuable commodity that's available locally and stretch it over a piece and have the, the grain or the color like the finished piece look the same throughout that kind of opened up a lot of design possibilities. um, And it took a a bit of a headache out of starting a project with enough wood and then oops, something goes wrong. You're one piece short now or you miscalculated or something. So there's still those issues a little bit, but like it goes way farther. Um, Finding one perfect piece. I, I say that a lot for my cabinets. I need to find one perfect piece that has the character that we're after. And then from that one piece, I can get an eight or 10 foot vanity out of it, um, sometimes bigger, uh, because you know taking this solid wood, I can get eight or 10 leaves out of that sometimes. Like a lot of times they're a 16th of an inch thick. So if you account for like bandsaw, um, kerf, and drum sanding and everything, it, it just yields so much more out of this, this one piece. So I'd like to say it's like a material savings, but like it's more than canceled out by the labor intensity of it because going from a solid piece to resaw, drum sand, edging, matching, glue up, gluing up the substrates for these panels. So when I first decided to get into doing this, it was because I kind of was curious about it. And I bought a vacuum bag and I kind of like did a little bit of research on how other people do it, what glues they use, and then did some trial and error too. But kind of figured out my own kind of like techniques based on others of how to do it efficiently and how to like leave myself some some leeway or like the way that I glue them up. Typically it has this solid edging behind the surface so that when I cut it into doors say, or drawer fronts, you'll still see solid wood. It's not to, to trick anyone, it's just that's a way to use the wood efficiently, but then also to get an extremely stable panel because you don't have to equate in the same way as um, solid wood for cupping or bowing or wood movement. You get a more stable panel and it just opens up a lot of possibilities on what you can do. You're not limited to the type of joinery you can use on certain pieces. Yeah. So it was a big misconception that I had going in as a furniture maker, just like automatically thinking that solid wood was best in every situation. And that's not true because I had so many clients ask me that question. And just have that gut reaction of like oh we're looking for solid wood because we're looking for quality those don't equate to each other like those the the quality does not equate to veneer in general it applies to a very specific type of veneer that's pretty ubiquitous in society but like if you go to like a piece of like say greg rousseau you go and see a piece of his and tell him that veneer is not high quality that's ridiculous the guy like literally wrote the book on it so I still do solid pieces, obviously, like I love solid wood. It's way easier, like in some instances, but um, I have a lot of respect for veneer and for the people that I actually know how to do the thinner veneer that just is like a whole different skill set than even what I'm doing, the matching and everything like that. Yeah, it's pretty high class stuff.
1: Well, it ties back in with educating your clients on what you do, the type of furniture you do, and you have information on your website and people can look at that and they can understand a little bit more about who you are before they make that first phone call or they send off that first email and them figuring out who you are saves a lot of time for both client and furniture maker because they know that you're the person they want to work with
0: for sure. Yeah.
1: Something that you actually said before we started recording this episode when we were talking, you talking about different revenue streams. And you also said different attention streams. And I love the way you said that. And I love that idea because yes, you're trying to get revenue streams from all different places if possible, and trying to expand your ability to make money from different situations. But in today's world, we have a lot of attention streams going on as well and a lot of things that we want to pay attention to you're running your furniture company you're writing and social media is a major part of a majority of people's attention stream and that as a furniture maker can be good and bad and you have to balance showing your work and putting yourself out there with your actual work in the shop or the actual way you run your business. As somebody who runs a furniture company and also has social media for that furniture company, let's talk about how you balance that, how you balance not only the work versus making the content, but also how you balance what you want to show your clients during the process of building.
0: Yeah, I think that that's When I started with social media, I was encouraged by some random guy that I met when I was like building one of those first lamps. And he had sold a few of his custom lamps that he made out of salvage parts through Instagram. He's like, yeah, you should just throw your work up there. And I get sales from it all the time. And from that, I I did that. And at the time I didn't have that many pieces to do, but that started to exposure to other people's work and you know kind of that influence good and bad but over the years like I got to a place where I think it was like 2016 where I was doing I was working like that summer all day every day basically Um, and I had like two or three projects going on at a time and I just started to take a lot of videos of it and that led to my Instagram growing somewhat fast and I would go through periods then over the next several years of giving it a lot of attention and then just really like falling out of habit of doing it. Cause it's a lot of work. It takes up attention to do it. It takes up emotional space when you do it, especially sometimes when you have high hopes for something, putting it out there and then you don't get the reaction that you're hoping for. Um, for the most part, Instagram has been a wholly positive experience. I've met clients through it. Like I've met friends that I wouldn't have known otherwise, but then yeah, it's something that you have to balance and, so the balance that I do kind of is when I'm when I'm too overwhelmed with things in the shop I I just I'm not able to give it the time that I otherwise would but I do kind of think of it as a, like a really important integral part of my business because if if I have a prospective client who I can point to my Instagram and say look at this work that I've done in the past one it shows them that I'm a real person they, they can see that I've done the work I can see that I have a history at this point of like six or seven years on there of different pieces. Um, But it's like this legitimacy that comes out of it beyond just direct clients that might come of it. Recently, it's kind of become more important to my business um, kind of unexpectedly because of Facebook trying to compete with TikTok, all these like crazy large companies um, throwing money around. So like all of these videos that I've made over time, like Facebook has monetized some of those. And so I have this revenue stream from that that I've never had before. Seeing how, how much that can affect putting something out there and then getting like a monetary reward from it is crazy when you're used to making one piece and selling one piece. So that's kind of like completely changed my attitude towards what I give my time to and what I could see in the future. Like, I, I don't think that I'm gonna be a YouTube creator necessarily, but the the kind of like diversification over like having some freedom from like a side revenue coming in to then getting closer to like your ultimate goals and knowing what those ultimate goals are. I want to be making the pieces that I want to make and then having it available and then somebody can buy it when they want, when it speaks to them, as opposed to just doing client work or just doing products or something like that. I'm hoping uh, maybe eventually and this always evolves, right like at one point I thought that I wanted to be doing large batches of furniture and I was going to have multiple employees and uh, was working towards that and then found out how, how overwhelming that can be and pulled back on that a little bit so social media like at the moment it feels great because it's literally part of my business um, but otherwise I look at it as the easiest outreach that I can do for legitimacy um, for some clients referral that doesn't involve like learning how to properly market. Because again, like wearing all the hats of a business, I don't have a marketing specialist. So that's that's like direct marketing. Like that's the thing that I know how to do at this point. And then as far as the like client seeing work, I think it's great because they it's like a passive way that I'm I'm doing it one for to put the work out there um, and get support or reaction from it, good and bad. Uh, but then also like they can see it happen in real time and see some of the processes that went into it. So, so that they know what's going into it so that they know it's, it's worth it. It's, it's worth it. And like, I hope to get to the point where I can document everything wholly. Every project has its own video or whatever that I, that I'm not so pulled in so many directions, but that's the evolving thing of what I'm taking on versus what I'm asking other people to do and all that.
1: The growth of social media as a way to validate your business, watching that happen has been so interesting because it used to be, if you really wanted to work with them, you would meet face-to-face. You would go to their shop. You would have a handshake and see what they're building. And that's how clients picked who they wanted to work with. But now... All they have to do is open up their phone and a lot of people's entire shops are there and clients can see that because if you can curate your social media well enough, then some people become fans before they even become clients and they like what you're doing so much and like the process that you're doing that they decide... When it becomes time for them to have a piece made, they're going to go with that person. So it's it's advertising, but it's something more than advertising. It's a look behind the scenes that really makes people understand who you are more than just a standard magazine ad or newspaper ad or even viewing pictures from your website.
0: Yeah, that's that brings up an interesting point point because when I was early on, like when I was still in the garage, still felt like I was like hustling day to day and that hasn't changed fully. But when I was, you know, looking for that next client and didn't know how to get it. And I had a, you know, a more limited social media audience, I guess you'd say, or just experience with it. I would do like local farmers markets or trying to do like craft fairs or, or find any niche that like I might meet a client or two And it works sometimes, but you'll get 95 people out of a hundred that just like completely dismiss your work or are not your target audience or you're over their budget or whatever. And then five people that are kind of interested, maybe one or two people that are actual clients or buyers and the face-to-face thing, it's great for certain aspects of it because you get to really get the feel of somebody and it's not what they present. Uh, But social media is just obviously like a compounding effect to it, where the magnitude or the, the, the audience of people that you can reach and find that one client, like you can, you know, be reaching hundreds, thousands, potentially millions of people at a time. And for me, my schedule isn't unlimited. I need 20 or 25 good clients a year, maybe. And that's, that's it. Like I, I can't do more than I can do. So social media might even just find those more ideal clients. It makes that easier because like most of what I do is online. Most of my orders come in through email on my website or Etsy. Um, And yeah, so I I have a a few that are in person or like that I I know from previous experience, but I'm not doing active marketing. It's just so much harder to sell in person and get the like stability or sustainability of the, the type of people that you're trying to reach.
1: Having success It's what we're all aiming for. It's what we're all pushing for. It's why it's why we wake up early in the morning and put work into our business. It's why we go home late at night because we worked really hard because we're pushing for that success. But there's sometimes when you reach that success and it's not what you thought it would be. You are burnt out. You Don't feel like you're getting what you want out of the business. You're working incredibly hard and there's no denying that. And you're pushing forward, but you're also not pushing where you want to go. And sometimes you need to take a step back and reevaluate where you want to take the company and how you want to build your company and how you can make it a sustainable Business. I know that you had an experience like that with your company. And it's a scary thing for business owners to deal with because you push so incredibly hard that you want to get to a place. And then you get to that place and you realize, I just spent all this energy and that's not where I want to be
0: for years. Like, Going back to the garage, it always seemed the orders that were coming in, like sometimes they'd come in all at once or, you know, get two or three in a two week span or something like that. And then sometimes it would be three or four weeks and you wouldn't have a, a client come in or like even like limited inquiries. And it just felt tenuous where the sustainability of the business would come from. And as time went on, like I moved out of the garage because I felt like I had a little bit of that consistency and i had more orders than i could fit in this like literally like one car garage I, i'd be building two or three beds at a time that could basically fit if i moved all of my tools and that was it um it, like it was very clear that i needed to move out of that space into a new space so i was lucky enough to find like a perfect like complementary business uh to move into and that kind of helped but like there was a little bit of stress at the overhead but everything was split and so it wasn't that hard to really adjust to that and move forward but it was still like oh i just need this like consistent if i could get four bed orders a month like if that was the standard then that would sustain hiring and, and all that stuff like the i'm pretty risk averse and so it takes a, a lot of time or a lot of like reassurance to then commit to that next step and so over the, like the couple of years that i was in that shared shop a lot changed like i was getting consistent work that entire time. With the exception of March to May of 2020, for obvious reasons, that wasn't the busy time. But I had this backlog of work before that, that I was just working through that and feeling like I was getting caught up a little bit. June, I started to get more inquiries. July, I started to get more orders. And then it just kind of kept pushing until like last February, kind of just started this months-long, maybe year-long pattern where I was had this barrage of orders and taking more on thinking about uh, i had a part-time employee at that point and i wanted to hire a full-time employee as well and was kind of moving forward with that and felt you know like the space in the shared shop was cramped but the other business that was in there he was also like thinking about expanding and he was the leaseholder and so at a certain point through all of this like he asked me um to be able to expand, like he asked me to find a new place. And that was kind of caught me off guard because I had a different timeline in my mind than that. But it was this huge stressor of like, while all of these orders were coming in and while I was thinking about hiring, I then also had to find like uh, a space. And here in Portland, like there's a lot of industrial space sort of, but a lot of it's more expensive than I can take on my own. And kind of as the like situation got more and more dire or like pressing for me to get out i eventually found a a nice space just outside of town and it's a nice space but with that moving into this space it is also like triple the overhead and at the same time i moved into this i brought on a full-time employee which was great at first because we had so much stuff to do and that continued for a while but there was this much greater pressure to not only like deliver for clients, but also like stay sane and figure out how to work. Cause like when you have an employee, like they get paid, just like rent gets paid first. Like you're not going to pay yourself first. And then one of those other people get shortcoming. You're the last person to get paid. And so just the last six months, that was like last July that I moved into this space through all the positives of it. There were also just like all of that negative energy and like just stress that came with that big of a change and then also just feelings of like feeling a betrayal in there um, and dealing with all of that at the same time and then also like I have two kids at home and my wife works full-time and I wouldn't be able to do what I do if it weren't for my wife and that like it, I at the time under like had, was pretty short-sighted of what the effect would be to my family, but it you know it's a very large effect when you do things for your business. You're not just doing it, you're not just making the decision for yourself. You're also making it for your family. And while I had an input from her, hindsight's 2020. Like I didn't, I didn't really feel how the the rest of after the move would go. So we got a lot of work done. Did a ton of work. Like really proud of all the stuff that we were doing. But I had to spend more time in the shop still, even with a full-time employee than I thought, but also didn't feel safe hiring a second employee on, uh, to come in and fell behind on like outreach, doing all the things that I thought would I would be freed up for. So for me, it just felt like I had too many threads out there, too many responsibilities in the business. And I was letting personal stuff slip. Like I didn't have enough attention for that. I was working on weekends still and always thinking that there's this promise of if we have more work that things would be better and like things would be sustainable but it just like it didn't match what i imagined that going that whole process like i didn't plan any of that so there was a step in there that would have made the transition to full-time employee and bigger shop would have made that much smoother but eventually like I kind of had to cut back on the the hours that I was able to offer and that employee then like decided to move on like amicably. I kind of just realized that the focus of getting bigger and having more orders isn't the ultimate focus for me, for my business. I would much rather have a more, a, a smaller business if it meant that I had time for my kids who are still small like my my son is 11 my daughter is four so there's still years ahead of a lot of things that I want to do with them and I don't want to be hoping that things turn around and be too late so being able to go at it alone for now and maybe bring on a part-time employee again uh, but just concentrate on like going back to the basics and not getting stuck in the idea that it's hustle all the time because I think that like there's a lot of merit in like working hard. I've worked hard for the last eight years on this business. And then the result of it is just, there's more hard work ahead and it just hasn't ever let up. It's unrelenting. And I think it kind of, this type of business tells you like whether you can do that forever or not. And if you can go for it, but I would say if you're going to be alone, depending on the type of person you are, it might not be the right fit. And so for me, I've just found that I want to concentrate more on getting back to finding the, the niche or the like the core of what I want to be doing in the future. And a lot of it's not what I'm doing right now, but I think that there's a path forward that, that I can be this furniture maker that does custom pieces and some batch products, but doesn't take on so much or doesn't have to take on so much that it's just this like, you know, constant wave of stress and feeling like there's never going to be an end
1: to it. It's the idea that I always go back to. And the whole reason that I started this show in the first place where there's not one right way to run a furniture company. There's a right way to run your furniture company. And you don't have to chase after the goals of a company that isn't working for you. And you saw it firsthand where you were chasing something. And once you got there, you realized that's not where you wanted to be. That wasn't your definition of a successful furniture company and you scaled it back. And that's the way you want to run your furniture company. And somebody else could run it differently. Somebody else could want to scale. And once they got there, they love scaling. And some people could never want to scale and they want to keep it where they are. And it's all about what you want to do. And I hope that this show with all the different people who I have on here, people can listen to that and listen to how different people run their company and take what they want to run their own company. So on that note, there are people who want to start their own furniture company, and they're looking to people who have been successful to learn from. And there's also people who have had their furniture company for a while, but don't feel like they're reaching the success that they want. So for those people, from your experience, can you share a little bit about what you feel your furniture company became successful?
0: Yeah, I think that success doesn't have to mean one thing. For me, I thought always that if I got to a certain revenue or profit or whatever, that that would be the successful thing that I did, that I can pay myself a certain amount. And in some regards, that's like a necessity of doing this. Because if I'm not going to make any money at it, why am I doing this? Like, I'll go take computer class. That's always my joke. Like, I, I'll go learn how to use a computer and make actual money, like make a save towards retirement and all of that. But like, if if you're drawn to do something on your own, there's some merit in it. But like, I, I think that part of it is like, when you look at social media, like I I base a lot of my perception of other people's success on their social media. And that's that can be like cancerous. You can get things in your mind that are just completely unrealistic because what I put out on social media is a very filtered version of what I'm doing. And despite that, I still see other people buying tools or hiring employees or going to certain shows and thinking, oh, okay, they're doing that and they, they've got it somewhat figured out. And so the things that I've got figured out, the processes that work for me, the products that do well for me, all of that works for me. But like you said, it doesn't work for everybody and you're going to figure out what version of this works for you, but it's just, you can't compare yourself to other people because it also has this effect that you take pieces from everybody that have successful aspects of their, your life. And you combine them into a whole like furniture company amalgam that, that, that person is Buying tools and that person's hiring employees, and that person just moved into this huge shop. And you just like take all that in as you have to be doing all those things too. And there's nothing that says you do have to do any of that. I would say that the most valuable thing that I wish I had were a partner in this. Like I have emotional support and like all of that from my wife, but she's not active in my business day to day. If I had somebody that was equally invested in figuring all of the things out, That would take so much off of my plate. There's a a lot of value in having that first partner, that first employee that can take on a chunk of all of the stuff that you're doing so that it frees you up to not be thinking about everything. Like I said earlier, I've learned how to do photography. I've learned how to do graphic design when I've needed to. I've learned how to film my processes and all of that. And then I've learned how to edit that footage and, and all that side stuff. All of that's like not even related to making furniture. So there are certainly lessons that I've learned in what not to do or what didn't work at that time, but finding the right people to trust and the right people to bring into your business when you're ready to, or just also like having the courage to stick to something. Even, even when people are asking you to to make the cabinet that you don't really want to make stick to the thing that you want to do, give it enough time that you can, Say definitively and not just it was unlucky or whatever, uh, because, like with everything that I've done, I didn't necessarily think that when I sold that those first two beds that I would become a bed maker, or when I did that vanity that I would be a vanity maker. Be careful about the opportunities you take. I guess.
1: I agree with you. Be careful about the opportunities that you decide to take. Understand your business and give yourself time to succeed. Don't just jump when things get hard give it a fair shot and understand that other people's successes might not be your own and i appreciate you sitting down with me and sharing your story and sharing your knowledge and your path to success with me and with everybody listening and thank you very much for your time and i wish you the best of luck moving forward thanks even Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com.